As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Mike, I have a surprise today. Okay. I like surprises. (laughs) That we're going to be taking a break. A break from what? Our our season. Really? Uh, For how long? Uh, No, no. Just just for today. (laughs) All right. Okay. You were kind of scaring me there for a minute uh, because I've been enjoying this season, but okay. I got you. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. So today I wanted to bring everyone a special bonus episode on the 10 dysfunctions of product management, which is a collection of issues that Rajesh Nurlikar and Ben Foster explore in their new book, Build What Matters. And I hope we're going to provide some maybe solutions to these as well. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So I am really excited to get into it today. So let's just get started. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. 
So Ben Foster is a friend of the pod, as they say. He's been on Rocketship countless times, the latest episodes being in our last season of Product Failures with stories from his time at eBay and Webvan. Yeah, those were excellent stories. Definitely worth going back and listening. Absolutely. And today I wanted to bring some of the concepts he and his co-author Rajesh explore in their new book, Build What Matters. They walk through 10 common dysfunctions and then outline a strategy to help overcome or avoid these issues at your organization, which we'll be touching on more at the end of the episode. Okay, so 10 dysfunctions. Where do we start? Let's start at the beginning, right? The first being the hamster wheel. I've seen this one before, actually. Yeah, you've probably seen all these at some point, <laughs> honestly. But <laughs> So you might be saying that a lot this episode. Okay, so let me see if I get this right. The hamster wheel this is where you as the leader of the product focus on your team's output versus outcomes. That's right. On the hamster wheel, all that matters is continuing to run, even though you're not really getting anywhere. Sometimes product teams almost entirely focus on hitting deadlines with little regard for the outcome of that output, right? So when desired outcomes are unclear or difficult to measure, leadership tends to concentrate on output instead. But what's the use of spending months developing a product that no customer wants or is willing to pay? for, whether you hit that deadline or not. Yes. If you're delivering the wrong thing, it doesn't matter how efficiently or quickly you deliver it. And your output isn't necessarily meaningful or beneficial unless you're creating value for the customer or your business. This is something we had to shift our focus on at Dribble, actually, in how we talk about our work. Instead of celebrating releases, we now celebrate outcomes from those releases, uh, which it's had a huge effect on what we focus on as a product team. Actually, here's Ben with more on the hamster wheel. In a lot of ways, it makes sense. Like it's the easy way out, right? Like you could, it's something that's very easy to measure. And because so many companies are so focused on measurability and they don't know what to measure when it comes to outcomes that a lot of times they kind of like emphasize too much on, you know, what the sort of like this hamster wheel problem. And so we kind of like called that attention, you know, to that one first and foremost. And there's been plenty of literature on that, that I would actually highly recommend like Melissa's Perry's Melissa Perry's book. Um, on uh, escaping the build trap is a great sort of like double click onto that in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think really, you know, kind of, you know, describes that, but we can probably move on to some of the other ones if that one's uh, <laughs> a little bit too obvious. Ben has a great story about this as well. Uh, so during his time at eBay from 2001 to 2005, product management was run by a few different leaders. Uh, when he first joined as an entry-level product manager, Marty Kagan was leading product management and design, and there was a true appreciation for the innovative role that product management played. After he left, though, the engineering leader stepped in to fill his shoes. With no clear way of holding product managers accountable for outcomes, she defaulted to pure productivity metrics. Product managers were actually issued a quota for lines of product requirements written per quarter. And that quota was increased each quarter to demonstrate productivity gains to the COO. That's it just sounds painful, right? Okay, so we get it. Let's get on to the next one, which is the counting house. Okay, so in the counting house, the focus is entirely on internal metrics with no regard to customer success. Many product teams have become obsessed with internal metrics like revenue growth, monthly active users, customer retention. Sometimes they even fabricate new metrics because they're convinced that if some internal number looks good, it must mean that the product is a success. The truth is though, right? Most internal metrics are trailing indicators of a product success and therefore shouldn't be the primary focus of product management. 
It's far better to answer the question, how can we effectively deliver greater value to our customers? If you can answer that question and create a good business model around the answer, your internal metrics will always follow suit. Next on our list is the ivory tower, where a lack of customer research leads product teams to think that they know a customer better than the customer knows themselves. I definitely feel seen on this one. <laughs> I bet you do, Michael. In the <laughs> ivory tower, product teams become so removed, so far above the customers that they start thinking they know their customers better than the customers know themselves. Consequently, they never really talk to their customers, which means they risk building a product that no one wants or needs. Just because a product team falls in love with its own solution, it doesn't mean that the customers will too. Furthermore, a lack of customer-driven insights can lead to a spiral of mistrust between product management and other stakeholder groups in the company. Product management feels like they're building the right product, and they might not be, honestly. So when the product doesn't perform well in the market, they assume the fault lies elsewhere. Yeah, it's truly a recipe for disaster. And Rajesh tells this story of building a dating app, investing money for a five-month build without ever talking to a single customer or even actively dating. <laughs> uh, they ended up launching, but no one was really interested. His takeaway was, for anyone who thinks a new product should exist in the world, build a simple landing page and create an email list based on a few simple features, right? And then talk to those customers that sign up and learn what resonates with them. Okay, let's take a quick break here and we'll be right back with seven more dysfunctions of product management. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Before the break, we went over the first three dysfunctions, and now dysfunction number four, the science lab. The science lab. Okay, is this like too much R&D? It's actually much worse. In the science lab, product teams tend to focus all of their efforts on highly measurable yet superficial improvements to the product. Collectively, these small-scale A-B tests don't do much to innovate or really add any customer value. Ah, in the last few years, we've seen optimization become the end-all, be-all for more and more companies rather than a facet of a balanced product development roadmap. Companies that are constantly trying to eke out more value from their existing solutions they run the risk of stagnating. It is almost impossible to A-B test your way to real innovation. So that's the lesson here. So what is next? Okay, let me see here. Okay, looks like the feature factory. Oh, it's a good one, right? So what does a feature factory build? Features, of course, right? <laughs> And when is the feature factory done building these features? Uh, never. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem with being a feature factory is that there's always the next one to build. Product teams fall into this trap because they are led to believe by customers or even internal stakeholders that if they just had that one next feature, they will close incremental deals or keep customers that might otherwise leave. Here's Ben on it. It's almost like the tip of the iceberg where it's unpacking something that's a much bigger and more profound problem for a company, which is that they get these 
you know, uh, customers giving them feedback on the product. Like, hey, I would, I would use it in this new way if only you had this capability. Or here's this limitation that your product had that if you could resolve this limitation, I would do the following. And sometimes it's even contingent on sales. Like, you know, I would buy your product or I would renew your product if only the following thing was there. Um, and so it's very easy to kind of get into that trap of like, oh, we just need to go build these things, you know, time and time again. But I think you need to take a step back and ask, what is the level of um, of specificity or the sort of level of, of exact precision that we want to have where our product matches exactly what our customer need is? Because from a customer's vantage point, I mean, you know, think about yourself as a consumer, right? Any kind of like product that you use, you can always imagine ways in which that product can be improved. And if you had an audience with the product management team, you know, for that product, you'd probably say all those things. You'd be like, well, I wish it did this and I wish it did this. But the problem is if you're responsive to every single one of those things, right? First of all, you'll never be done. So you'll never actually get there. It's like chasing a rainbow. And number two is you actually create a lot of problems for your own company, right? You're overcomplicating your product. You're kind of like building for customer solution fit rather than for product market fit. And there's a reason that we use the terminology product market fit, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a more of like a one size fits all kind of like product. And the reality is there is no such thing as like one size fits all perfectly, but one size fits all good enough, right? And um, and, and it, 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 there's almost like this handshake that you kind of like get into when you try to be a product driven company to think about um, how do we deliver a product that's going to be satisfactory and you know make create like a real customer delight but that doesn't equate to perfection from each customer's perspective because if you did that the only way to satisfy that would be to like custom build a million different things right and if you custom built um you know every individual feature for every individual you know customer they'd be perfectly satisfied with what you delivered but they'd also be like um, you know, complicating your product in such a way that you couldn't continue to innovate on their behalf, right? And that's kind of like one of the roles that we as product managers play as well is, you know, we don't sort of ask our, our customers to innovate for us and tell us the next feature that they want. We tell, we ask them to tell us what problems they're experiencing and how we can sort of like help them to resolve those problems through our own innovation and our own sort of like ideas for where the product should head. Enterprise sales companies run this risk often. When sales is running your roadmap and need a ton of these one-off features to close new business, product teams are left without much of a roadmap beyond direct customer demands. It takes real product leadership to move outside of this trap, where they can align the sales team with the product team to agree that while these one-offs might be a short-term gain, the big opportunity lies in a cohort roadmap that blends short-term and long-term gains. All right, so we've covered the ivory tower where no customer research is used. The business school is where too much data is used to make or avoid making key product decisions. The business school is where you go to analyze business, right? But you don't actually do business, right? <laughs> Similar product teams can get so wrapped up in overanalyzing everything that they avoid making tough but essential judgment calls. When it comes to prioritization, some product managers are tempted to get so technical and mathematical, they actually lose perspective. Yeah, this one sounds great in theory, but in reality, no product decisions are being made at all. The initiatives that show the highest estimated impact are the ones that were modeled using the most outrageous assumptions. And usually, only the lowest effort improvements end up above the cut line. All the while, customers and larger business strategy are completely ignored. Arming oneself with spacious ROI estimates at a committee meeting is a poor substitute for making the right strategic decisions to maximize the impact of product development. Okay, so this next one is incredibly relatable. I'm just going to say it. 
sports, the roller coaster. Ah, the roller coaster. Oh, yeah. All about the fast thrills and wild whiplashing movements. They could be fun, but they're not a good model for effective product management. Investors and executives like to see immediate results. And when those results don't materialize right away, they can tempted to be pivot suddenly, resulting in a whiplash for the product team. This problem comes from setting a time horizon that is just too short, right? For startups, a lack of patience is often the result of having a very short runway. They have to get something up and running fast so they can raise the next big round of funding, or they need to start producing revenue right away. Of course, everybody wants to make fast and efficient progress, but... Providing insufficient opportunity for success will result in false negatives that could lead product managers astray. When an otherwise healthy fail-fast mentality is taken to the extreme, it can actually stifle innovation. Here's Ben on failing fast. Fail fast is a great kind of like mantra. I think it makes a lot of sense, right? But you almost like you have to complete the sentence. It's like fail fast so that you can accelerate the learnings so that you can then be successful. And I think that it almost like gets cut short too much as fail fast. And, and what happens with a lot of companies is that they say, okay, well, because we're supposed to make these speedy decisions, I don't want to overinvest any amount of engineering resources into this. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to build a kind of crappy version of this feature that everybody could predict early on is never going to succeed unless it sort of like blows us away and gets these outrageously, you know, positive kind of like results, then we'll just kill it immediately and we'll just move on to the next thing. And it's kind of like, what's the point of that, right? Like if you kind of know that it's not going to succeed in the first place, this sort of like very short-sighted nature of like, we've got to get these kind of tremendous results in this very short time for period. Otherwise we're going to pivot, pivot, pivot. You know, how many companies are sort of like, you know, dead out there, uh, you know, running out of capital because all they did was sort of like, you know, pivot every two weeks based on things that they learned. And they're like, oh yeah, it was great that we failed fast. But if you don't sort of have a way of, of turning that into a success, uh, you know, so th then, then you're going to fail and you're going to fail in the long run. So, you know, the frequency of your failures doesn't really matter. It's really about the speed at which you get to success. And I think that that's the part that's really important here. And so the reason we called this the roller coaster is because you can imagine the feeling of like being on a roller coaster where you're getting like whipped around and, you know, it might be kind of like fun and exciting in t at times, but it'll give you a hell of a headache as well. And, uh, you know, it'll make you barf after a while too. And I think sometimes as product managers, we feel that way, you know. This next one is one that many product managers have fought against. You must be talking about the bridge to nowhere. Yes, that is exactly the one I'm talking about. Now, engineers love solving future problems with technology, and that could be a good thing, but it can also be taken too far. They get excited about developing the infrastructure to get the product just right, but sometimes they can actually end up over-engineering a product, trying to account for future needs that just aren't relevant yet, and maybe they'll never be relevant. As a result, product development can get so bogged down that a great product that would have delivered meaningful customer value never sees the light of day. It's also the fear of having any technical debt. So honestly, meaningful progress is never made. Every tech company has to invest in underlying technology of its product, but there also must be sufficient confidence that it will offer tangible value to the business or the customer within a reasonable time frame to warrant investment now. Scaling for the future that never materializes it's a futile exercise that no tech company can really afford. Okay, well, this is fun, right? So now we've got two more and then some solutions right after a quick break. All right, so we've got two dysfunctions left and then some 
answers to these problems, right? That's right. We're not just going to leave you hanging with 10 dysfunctions. <laughs> but first, we have the negotiating table. And here's Ben on that dysfunction. The negotiating table is, a, is, is what we refer to when you can kind of imagine like a product manager sitting, uh, you know, at one place on a table. And then you've got all the stakeholders and all the other kind of like spots, right? Whether it's marketing or sales or engineering or the CEO or, you know, maybe even a customer, right? Like, you know, the, the whole Jeff Bezos model of having the customer, you know, empty chair there, right? And so all these different parties have their own particular interest for things that they're looking for. And the reality is, of course, every product manager has limited uh, finite resources when it comes to, you know, engineering capacity to go get things done. And so you get all these great ideas, you know, everybody's got like a, a bunch of really good things that they want to get from product. But the reality is we're going to have to be really, really selective about what we do. And I think the mistake that happens here and the, and the one that we sort of call attention to is to think of this whole thing as though somehow it's a negotiation, like it's a zero sum game, like it's a matter of, OK, well, I got to give a little bit to marketing over here. And because sales is really loud and boisterous and they're pounding their fist on the table, I need to give them something a little bit more you know like that's not necessarily the right way to be prioritizing the product and yet we sort of see that happen time and time again across you know different companies and to your point it's not just with the big companies it's at companies of all sizes where i think product management feels this tremendous pressure to somehow keep everybody happy and that's not the role of product, right? And we've all probably seen this. Uh, CEO has a grand new business line. Sales wants three new features to close some big deals. Engineering feels it's critical to tackle some technical debt. Customer support needs a big bug fix. This sounds like nearly every planning meeting I've been in. <laughs> yeah, I've been in those too. But how can a product manager actually satisfy all these requests in a timely manner so they could get that all-important pat on the back from everybody? Yeah, it's it's a bit like playing a game of high-stakes Tetris as product managers try to fit all the incongruent requests together. However, it's not a leader's job to give everybody what they want. And in fact, True leadership requires making some unpopular decisions. Product teams find themselves in the negotiating table situation when the organization misunderstands the product management's chief purpose. Here's actually a story from Ben on this. A good example of this from my own career would just be, <laughs> I guess it's almost like harder to find a time when this wasn't the case to some extent, uh, you know, where you didn't have that kind of situation. But I think that um, you know, the, the, the situations where I probably feel like I, I handled these things wrong from my own career where I made a mistake um, is cases where there was a lot of mounting pressure and we, you know, ended up kind of like doing a, a little bit of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different kind of activities. And um, when I was at Opower, you know, we had a lot of different stakeholders who were involved. It was a really complex business. It's a B to B to C enterprise sale but to consumers um, who weren't even choosing to buy the product. And so you can kind of imagine it's almost like the worst of all those worlds in terms of like all the different stakeholders who had, you know, kind of like a claim to some extent of what they, what they wanted product to be able to do. So, you know, the, the mistake that I think I made in that regard was not revealed to me until maybe even like, you know, two years later when I felt like I had been doing a really good job of prioritizing across all these needs of these different stakeholders. And everybody was sort of like mildly satisfied but the CEO kind of came to me at one point, you know, a couple of years later and was like, you know, where, where's the big thing that we innovated? Like, what, what was the big module that we created? What was the new SKU that we created? What was the new market that we went after? And it's sort of like this recognition of like, wow, you know, we satisfied all of our internal stakeholders without really paying attention, not just to like kind of customer demands and individual kind of like, you know, we're certainly getting plenty of those as well, but to really thinking about the big business opportunities that were out there um, that really, I think is, is a place where product needs to kind of like take 
um, a stance and to say, this is the direction that we're going and we're going to rally everyone around this rather than sort of like playing defense against all these kind of like, you know, barrage of different needs. And that actually transitions nicely into the throne room. The throne room. Yes. Sometimes the founder (laughs) or CEO, they just can't let go. They feel compelled to make decisions about anything and everything important to the company, and they give their team very little ability to call their own shots. Now, their instincts, maybe they got them where they were, so they think it will continue to carry them forward. But at a certain point, instincts, they don't scale. Their job title becomes a trump card anytime they want to override a creative decision, and they might not even bother to clarify the rationale when they throw their weight around. They fail to drive alignment around a product decision. So no one really understands what they're doing or why. In these kind of situations, the CEO typically changes their mind frequently, sometimes with little notice, and usually with no real explanation or justification. Every request is treated as priority number one, and the product manager is expected to give them 100% of their attention. Yeah, it's an impossible situation for a product team that prevents the scaling of the company beyond a single decision maker. There must be a clear framework around prioritization that everybody in the company understands so every initiative can be properly evaluated to determine if it contributes to the end state, customer vision, and ultimate success of the company. Okay. But we have some good news. You know, I've been in product for a little over 20 years now, and probably the first 15 of those years, <laughs> I was guilty of, of trying to kind of like approach these things the wrong way. I was kind of like, okay, well, we're running into the problem of, you know, the ivory tower or the business school or the bridge to nowhere or all these other kinds of dysfunctions that exist. Um, and what I need to do to resolve those is to kind of like defend against this specific, you know, situation. And the reality is it's kind of like an unwinnable problem. Like there's no way as a product manager that you're going to somehow get a limited, you know, amount of engineering capacity and you're going to have a barrage of all these kinds of like requests and you're going to have to like, you know, build a bunch of capabilities that are going to, you know, please, uh, shareholders, uh, and, and help you to kind of get the next round of investing at the same time that you're also kind of like you know, building the right kind of like technical uh, technology underpinnings for the next kind of like future revs of your product. So it's like an unwinnable problem. And I think that the issue that I was probably running into and, and the, one of the reasons that we wanted to write this book was because we see a lot of other people trying to do this as well. If I could only reach to the stakeholder, if I could only have the right kind of conversation with the CEO about this, if we could only do a better job of defining who our target market was, you know, things like that. Um, those things are all important, but every time you, it's like you, you fix one and you create another, it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? Where you, you kind of beat one of them down and the other one just kind of pops up somewhere else. And so what we realized was that all of these, even though they seem like they're completely different types of dysfunctions within product, there's one commonality that they all have, which is that they're all ways in which a void gets filled within an organization. And it's kind of like a void to some extent of like product leadership, right? Um, and it kind of comes back to that conversation we just had about, you know, the the discussion that I had with the CEO at Opower, where it's kind of like, hey, I, I, want, I want you to tell me what the vision is. I want you to tell me the direction that we should be going with the product overall. So it's almost like what you need to do is push all of these issues away and say, I'm not gonna try to resolve any of these directly. Instead, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a completely new approach and I'm gonna spend my time focusing on figuring out what the right kinds of things are for our customers, figuring out what kind of problems we need to solve, developing a vision for what the end state of the product will look like, and developing a strategy by which we can get there. 
right? And if I can do a good job of articulating what those things are, if I can do all the customer research that puts me in a position of authority and sort of like, you know, power within the organization to make those kinds of claims about the direction that the product could go. And if I can do a really good job of communicating that to all the other internal stakeholders and to customers in certain situations, then I no longer have to play defense. It's kind of like the best defense is a good offense, right? And um, it's that kind of advice that we've sort of, you know, found ourselves time and time again, uh, giving to, to companies that we've worked with in an advisory capacity. Uh, and when we see that happen, when we see them actually take the time to put that in place, it's amazing how all these other kind of problems vanish, right? And if you think about like that negotiating table, what happens is, you know, the, the salesperson who says, hey, I wanted all these one-off kind of like, you know, things to close these deals says, I actually understand now for the first time what I'd be trading off by asking for these things. And what's incredible is how rarely you actually get specific requests. And you know how to interpret those now as a product manager, because if they know the direction that we're headed as a, pro as a product team, then they have confidence that we're going to be working on things that may, may not actually close them that next deal this week, but is going to help them to close 100 deals in six months' time. So this is leading through a vision. Right. And you can't focus 100% on a long-term vision, but you can start to break your roadmap into short-term wins, R&D or long-term vision work, and technical debt or bug fixes, depending on your needs. The issues really arise when you focus too heavily on just one of these buckets. You just start to lose track of where you're going. So what's keeping people from implementing this today? This is what I see happen a lot is I say, you know, why haven't you done this already? And they're like, oh, well, that's because I'm waiting on a corporate strategy from the CEO, or I don't know yet what the next round of investors are going to be looking like and what their sort of like interests are for this, you know, for this company. Or I don't know, uh, you know, marketing hasn't been clear yet about who our target market is and whether that's evolving in the next one to two years. So until I sort of see all these things, I can't put it together. And I call BS on that. Like if you're going to be a product leader, you want to be a product driven organization. That means you take the bull by the horns. You go kind of like plant a, uh, you know, a, a stake in the ground and say, this is who our target market's going to be. This is the kind of like, you know, product strategy that we're going to have. This is what the end user experience is going to look like when we've actually achieved our vision. Uh, and once you establish those things, then you can get buy-in into those. Right. But I think if you kind of sit around waiting, like, look, we're all busy right? Like you're just not going to get it. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of companies that I've seen where they've kind of like waited on this and waited on it for years and years. And eventually the product manager just like leaves the company thinking that they're working at a place that doesn't provide this. And I think that it's a situation where you as a product person need to look inward and say, what could I have done to kind of create more of this? You know, you're, you're right. You don't need to have permission to, the, you know, to, to do this. Now that means you may put some work into this and you may get some of that, you know, you may have somebody else tell you, hey, the decision that you made about who our target market was is actually incorrect. Here's actually who it should be. But look at the conversation that you just kicked off by having done this, right? Like you started the wheels in motion of actually having the important conversation about who is our target market rather than waiting for that whole entire you know, argument that never happens to effectively manifest when you share the next version of the roadmap. And so how do you bring the right people together? It's amazing how many times I hear people say, you know, I wish I had a seat at the table for these kinds of conversations. And it's like, there's a really good way of getting a seat at the table. Like you schedule the meeting, you, you know, organize, you invite the people and you say, this is what we're going to be talking about, right? Rather than waiting for this to kind of thing to happen. And I think there's a lot of kind of like relatively passive behavior within product and in a lot of organizations where, you know, really instead it needs to be like an assertive approach to say, here's what we're really about. Here's what we're not about. Here's what our design principles are. 
here are the kind of like, you know, methodologies by which we're going to make decisions about what we work on, you know, et cetera. And then kind of like, you know, sharing that with the rest of the organization. That's what leadership is, right? And I think that's what leadership and product looks like. So to go even deeper into these solutions, pick up Ben's book, Build What Matters, uh, which is on Amazon or anywhere else you could buy books today. Yeah. And we'll put the link down in the show notes. The book is incredible. And it, it's honestly one of the best product books that I've read recently. So, Michael, coming up next week. Yeah, we have a product journey from one of my favorite founders, another longtime friend of the pod. Oh, and who's that? Well, I, I can't say just yet. We're waiting on the final green light to talk about it, but it's going to have a big announcement. It's going to be a great product journey. Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad-free feed. All you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash Rocketship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad-free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people. Product Collective is also the home of industry, the product conference, industry virtual workshops, and one of the largest Slack groups for product people anywhere. And we're also on the Podglomerate Network, so a huge thanks to Podglomerate. You can listen to all the Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. We'll see you here next week on Rocketship.fm.